Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, when we begin our talks uh, in the book of Mark, one of the main points that we make was that it was a very subversive and disruptive book, written probably uh, to persecuted Christians in Rome. The opening lines of the book, which reads, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, was highly provocative as the term good news or the gospel was commonly, commonly used to refer to joyous messages about the emperor of Rome. This morning in part eight of our talks, uh, we're going to discover another reason why Mark's gospel is subversive. In the text uh, from Mark 5 that we heard Emma read to us this morning, we have two stories uh, that have several things in common. Number one, they're about two females. Second, both in desperate states. One, an older woman is, in, is incurably ill, and the other, a, a young lass, uh, is terminally ill. Third, both of them are healed by the touch of Jesus. Fourth, both are called daughters by Jesus. The fifth, fifth thing that they have in common is the number 12. The older wo woman has a 12-year ailment, and the little girl is 12 years old. Sixth, they're both unclean. The older woman is unclean because of her menstrual hemorrhage, while the little girl is unclean because by the time Jesus goes to her to heal her, she's a corpse. First, the little girl. After being expelled from the Decapolis area, the scene of the pigs drowning, Jesus crosses back to Jewish territory on the western shore of the Lake of Galilee. As soon as he sets foot on the land, he's met by Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, a lay member of a synagogue appointed by the elders of the community to oversee a local Jewish worshiping community. In verse 22, part B to 24, part A, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. As Jesus was about to set off with Jairus, he's interrupted by an older woman suffering from menstrual hemorrhage. We will pick this up, uh, pick the story up later, but let's continue with Jairus' daughter. In the middle of Jesus' interaction with the older woman, Mark reports the following, verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There is no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. In the NIV, we read, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus speaks directly here and authoritatively to Jairus, telling him to shift his focus, which would have been a hard thing to do, but he needed to shift his focus from the circumstances of his little girl's death onto him, to not fear, but to believe him who makes all things possible. 
You believed in me by coming to me for the first time. Keep faith in me, Jairus. Keep faith in me, Jairus. That is what the word believe means, to keep believing, to hold on to faith in God rather than to give in to despair. This is what Jairus can do, as difficult as it was. This is what, this is the only thing Jairus can do. And this is Jesus' challenge to all of us. We can superimpose the circumstances of life onto God and his character, or we can superimpose God's character and his promises and his word onto the circumstances of life. Verse 37, then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw such, so much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. Now, why did they laugh at Jesus? Because the little girl is dead. Not unconscious, according to some Bible commentators. Here's a girl who needs to be revived, who needs to be raised from the dead, not resuscitated. Furthermore, in the New Testament, the word asleep is often synonymous with being dead. The unbelief and the mockery of the crowd is not helpful to Jairus. So Jesus made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying, holding her hand. Now remember, she's considered unclean. She's a corpse. And so Jesus, by touching her physically, is very, very, very significant. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was two 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed, totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and he also told them to give her something to eat. There are no spells, no incantations, typical of healers in those days. Jesus simply touches her lifeless body, her unclean body, and issues a simple ordinary phrase, but tinged with affection and tenderness. Talitha kum. It's Aramaic, the everyday language of Jewish Palestine in Jesus' days, and it literally means arise, lamb. Arise, lamb. Talitha is a feminine form of the word for lamb or youth, and kum means arise. Lovely, isn't it? Arise, little lamb. The instruction that food be served to the little girl attests to the fact that she's fully restored and alive and not some disembodied spirit. But it also shows Jesus' thoughtful and practical care for her. Isn't that great? All right? Didn't see it as a PR opportunity. All right, guys, break the door wide open and let's display uh, this girl and, and just give a brouhaha and... Uh, let people know who I am. In fact, he was quite 
uh, low-key about it all. In fact, he told them to be silent. Let's attend to this girl. She'd be starving by now. Give her something to eat. Now to the second female in the passage who's suffering from menstrual hemorrhaging. For 12 agonizing years, 12, 12 long years, she's ritually unclean and impure, which means her suffering is not just physical. Garland elaborates further. The woman's impurity is transmissible to others until the problem is cured. Anyone who has contact with her, lying in her bed, sitting in her chair, or touching her becomes unclean and is required to bathe and to launder clothing. She's therefore similar to the leper as one suffering and is excluded from normal social relations. So she is desperate to get well. And in a desperate desperation to, to get well, she spends her entire wealth, her savings on doctors. Tragically, her condition worsens. She does not get better. She gets worse. Her prospects are no better than the little girl. But one day she hears that Jesus is making an appearance. She had heard how he had healed countless of people. So she goes to where he is and has this hope that if she could only touch his garment, that perhaps by doing so, she would be healed. But she would do it discreetly. Mark refers to the act of her touching Jesus close four times in verses 27, 28, 30, verse 30, and 31. I wonder why he did that. My, my, my suspicion is that uh, Mark doesn't mention it, but I would imagine that in her condition and in the throes of a huge crowd following Jesus, even making her way to where Jesus is wouldn't have been easy. Yeah, just... Remember, it's a big crowd, and he's, she's inching her way. She, she needs to touch her garment, at the very least, his garment. And this would not have been an easy thing to do. And, and, and Mark highlights the fact that, that uh, he's, he's trying to touch her uh, four times. T I mean, touch him four times. It shows her desperation. That's what it shows. She knew being in public and touching Jesus, even his garment, was, were violations of the Torah. We also see her determination as well. She's not one to take things lying down. And finally, of course, we see her faith in Jesus. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And Mark records the following, verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Twelve years of suffering and shame and isolation are gone by her simply touching Jesus. However, in the same instance, we read in verse 31, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And the disciples answered, you see the people crowding against you. How can you ask, who touched me? It's a ridiculous question. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
confident he would know the individual the moment he sets eyes on them. I imagine the disciples just rolling their eyes at this point, right? We're all surrounded by people, Jesus. Take a pick. Anyone could have touched you. And why is it so important to find out the identity of the person who touched you anyway, Jesus? What does it matter? And the woman feeling like a naughty girl who had done the wrong thing finally owns up. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The woman didn't just say, I touched you. She explained everything. She explained why. Now, her humiliation and fear would have been off the charts at this point, right? Remember, she's ritually unclean. How is the crowd going to respond to her disclosure? The disciples and the crowd who heard her would have stared at her, incensed. And if looks could kill, she would be dead. You, you are unclean. You are impure. How could you be in public? How could you be contaminating all of us, never mind touching Jesus? You are so selfish and inconsiderate. Damn you for being here in our midst. Damn you for not considering any one of us. But what about Jesus? How would he respond? The woman had no idea, of course, but she need not worry. In stark contrast, Jesus responds to her fear and trembling with tender compassion. He didn't tell her off for touching him. Jesus was insistent in finding out who she is, not because Jesus is an insensitive male, not because he wants to embarrass her. Why did he do it then? Why did he insist on finding out the person who touched him? I love what a Bible commentator wrote. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, known by him, and following him. She wants a cure, and she received that, but much more. Jesus offered her friendship. Jesus offered her his love. Jesus offered her his blessing, not just a cure, physical cure. He refused to allow her to remain anonymous. He forced the issue so that she would know that the one who heals her knows her, and cares for her, that she's a person worth taking time with and addressing. That's why he insisted on finding out who touched him. So what? What does it mean for us in the here and now? I recently came across Tom Holland, an award-winning English author and historian, 
who has written several best-selling fictional and non-fictional books. He grew up with an atheist dad, but his mom, quote, was a, a devout Anglican, but not in the pushy sense, but in the sense that it informs her life, unquote. As a boy, however, he stopped believing in the Bible. But he did go on to say, and I quote, my model of kindness and goodness derives from her. I've always associated Anglicanism with goodness and decency and generosity of spirit and compassion. He grew up more fascinated by mythology than by Jesus. He particularly adored the Greek gods. But in 2016, in an article titled, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity, he made this confession. I quote, It took me a long time to realize my morals, that is, my Western values, are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. After years of research, he concluded in his book, written as, as a historian, since it's not a religious book, he writes this book as a historian, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, that to live in a Western country, quote, to live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. In particular, he asserts that the current debates about gender and sexuality depend on Christian ideas. He writes, remember, as an historian, quote, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. In the Bible. In Greco-Roman thinking, women were inferior to men, and sex was a way to make this point. Holland writes, as captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman men. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior. And he continues that in Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. So the notion that every, that, that every woman had the right to choose what happened to her body was ludicrous. And Christianity comes along and knocks this entrenched value and worldview and mindset head on. Women, rather than being inferior to men, were portrayed as equally made in the image of God. Men were expected to be faithful to one wife or to live in celibate singleness rather than being free to use slaves and prostitutes. Sleeping with an enslaved woman was outlawed by Christianity. A, a Christian husband was to love his wife as Christ loved the church. 
As Rebecca McLaughlin, another English writer and an apologist for Christianity, explains, quote, the relative weakness of a body was not a license for domination, but a reason to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She goes to point out that while Roman families married off, often married off their the prepubescent daughters, Christian women would marry, could marry later. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gave instructions that a widow was affirmed in remaining a single, but she was also free to marry any man she chooses and desire provided that the man belonged to the Lord. And so it's no wonder that women found Christianity very appealing at the time and just thought it was great. So attractive, so appealing. And it's all because of the high value Jesus placed on women by affirming their intrinsic value as people equal to that of men, as we saw in our text this morning. You can't see this unless you reread the text this morning, and for that matter, the entire New Testament through first century eyes. You see that? Jesus' regard for women is nothing short of revolutionary, radically countercultural, and subversive. Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly welcomed women his contemporaries despised. It didn't matter if they were prostitutes. It didn't matter if they were deemed ritually unclean like the two women in our story. It didn't matter if they were despised foreigners, married, single, sick, or disabled. Jesus addressed them all directly in, while in public. And this was unusual for men to do. It's in the case of his conversation with a Samaritan woman, which, by the way, turns out to be Jesus' longest conversation with any individual on record. It's got to be there for a reason. It wasn't just the fact that he spoke to women, but it was how he spoke to women. He, he did it in a very thoughtful, caring, respectful woman, in a respectful manner. He called the two women in our story today daughters, as in daughter of Abraham, and in doing so, accorded to them a spiritual status equal to that of men. For this reason, I believe Jesus chose to announce his resurrection to women first. Again, he's trying to make a point, which is ironic because women were not considered reliable witnesses in Jesus' day. But he chose them anyway. Like it or not, I'm going to announce my resurrection to women. They're going to be the first ones to proclaim the gospel. In Mark's gospel, to act upon what one hears about Jesus is the mark of his disciple. It's the mark of discipleship. So, therefore, as his disciples this morning, I'd like you to consider your attitude and treatment of women. Not just your treatment, but your attitude, your inner attitudes towards women. Do you see them as inferior? Do you see them as beneath you? Do you see them as below you? And more broadly, let's not limit the sermon's application today to women. 
But consider your attitude and treatment of those you consider inferior to you. So women, you may have a problem with men. And you look at men and you're disgusted by men for whatever the reason. You hate them. You despise them. They're beneath you. They're unclean. So consider your attitude and treatment, not only of women, of men, but anyone whom you consider inferior to you, whom you consider as unclean, those you show little regard to, based not only on gender, but also on race, on age, socioeconomic backgrounds, political leanings, religion, sexual orientation, personality, etc., What's your attitude towards gays, towards homosexuals, towards those who struggle with gender dysphoria? What's your attitude towards people of darker skin? If you stood in the presence of Jesus right now, and we are standing in the presence of Jesus right now, would he be pleased with your attitude? Would he be pleased with your treatment? of these people. If not, we need to repent. That's the first thing we need to do. We need to repent. And repent means turn around. You go this direction, you go the other direction. Second, with the Holy Spirit's wisdom and leading, consider how you might treat them differently as made in the image of God. Whatever Whoever they are, whatever their political leanings are, whatever their sexual preferences are, whatever struggles they have, they're still made in the image of God. That's a fundamental reality about people that you don't like, that you don't get along with. And instead of going, you know, where do I start? Well, start with one individual on your front line. Start with one individual where you work, where you fellowship, where you are where your social circles are? Is there one person in your group, in your social circle that you struggle with, that you despise in your heart, that you look down upon as beneath you and inferior to you? Start with that person. So that's your application this week. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the sick and unwell in our immediate and extended Windsor Road community. The story that we read today give us courage, give us faith to pray for the sick and unwell. Because the age of miracle is not over. You're still alive and well. And because you're alive and well and present in the 21st century, that means your miracle working power is still on display. You still work miracles. And so we uphold, Lord, those who are unwell and un, uh, who are sick in our midst or in the extended community that your healing power might unfold them, your healing power might uphold them, your healing power might reach out to them and touch them in Jesus' name. May our touch and that of medical personnel and family assure them of your presence, particularly for those, Lord, who have been battling health issues for a long time. We pray for those, Lord, whom we've wounded through our words and actions. 
because we've deemed them to be inferior to us, unclean, beneath us, on the basis of their race, age, socioeconomic background, their religion, their sexual orientation, their personality, and other bunch of reasons. May your healing power enfold and uphold them as well. Show us, Father, how our callous attitude and treatment of them grieve your Holy Spirit. And do not reflect your love, your compassion, and your tenderness for them. We repent. We ask that you might have mercy on us. We ask that you forgive us. We ask that you will heal us and give us your strength, courage, and wisdom to put things right with them. Help us, Lord, to follow your example. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.